And with that, please open with me in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 2. Last week, we opened up the first two of Zechariah's visions. This week, we will open up the next two. Yes, I intended it to be three. Uh, about halfway through the week, it was very clear that that was not going to happen. But remember where we've been. That first vision of Zechariah, the writers under the myrtle tree, the idea that the Lord has sent out his patrol over all the earth. And though the nations appear to be at rest, God is jealous for his people and his place. The idea that Jerusalem has been brought low, that God's people have been humbled and disciplined, is not the final state of things. He says he will return once again to his people and to his particular place of worship. And then that second vision with the horns and the craftsmen, the idea that Israel has had bitter and powerful enemies over the years, and yet God, in his sovereign control over all things, has raised up powers to overthrow the powers that come against his people. That consistent promise that God is not only aware of the state of his people, but that God defends and protects and ensures the survival of his people. And while you and I have come through another week, another busy week, another very full week, we're jumping back into the same night. All of these eight visions in a single night, all of these eight visions that build, that kind of telescope off of one another. So we've traveled, but we're back. Consistent uh, kind of narrative framework that we're building. We got to keep the context here. So if you're not there already, find your way to Zechariah chapter two. I'm going to read verses one through five to set the stage for the first vision that we'll cover today. Zechariah chapter two, beginning in verse one, this is what God's word says. And I lifted my eyes and I saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me to measure Jerusalem to see what its width and what its length are. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to two more visions today, visions that might be uh, different than we're used to encountering, visions that might lead to some various interpretations, uh, Lord, we quiet our hearts and we take a moment to ask that you would do what we can't, and that is to bring light and understanding. Lord, open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Our own opinions, our own education, our own understanding, although that's typically what we like to argue about, doesn't really matter. Lord, help us to see the truth that you have revealed through your word. And Lord, don't leave us merely understanding, but through the power of your spirit, help us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Help us to take the truth that we see and to put it into practice in our lives. Lord, help us not to be merely hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And Lord, we need your help to do that. We don't have the strength, we don't have the will, we don't have the desire on our own. Lord, move in our hearts so that we might be your obedient, worshipful people. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. There are definitely some pictures that are easier to understand than others. In most of your pockets, there is a cell phone uh, with a camera that takes pictures to a greater clarity than anything we could have hoped for growing up. And now every time you take a selfie, uh, you see every gory detail. Uh, 
the, the gray hair, the missing hair, the nose hair, the ear hair, all the hair everywhere. It's just there in brilliant 10K clarity, uh, whether you wish it were or not. And then there are some pictures uh, that require a little bit more interpretation. Most of us who are parents have had the experience, your child brings you something wonderful that they are deeply proud of. And you stand there before them wondering whether you should compliment them on the narwhal or the giraffe that they have drawn, and your wife is behind you desperately doing charades, trying to tell you that it's a cat, and you can't mess this up. And no matter what it is, the picture's going to be precious, and no matter what it is, it's going on the fridge, but it's harder to tell what it was supposed to be. When we come to Zechariah, and when we come to visions in general in the Bible, uh, these aren't simply precious because God gave them to us, and so we're going to hang them on the fridge and say that they're good enough, and we'll kind of use our imagination to figure out what they are. These don't need our imagination. When we come to these visions, there's clarity here that comes from the context, and so there really are precious truths that we can draw out. There are messages to a people in a place that means something, and because they mean something concrete to those people, you and I can rest assured that we worship that same God. That that faithful God who made promises to his people Israel will be faithful to keep the promises that he's made to us. And so today we're going to open up two additional visions here. The first one is going to be of the holy city, Jerusalem. The second vision is going to be of the high priest, a man named Joshua. And once again, they're going to follow the similar format. Illustration, the picture that the vision gives. Explanation, we'll see what those images and what those pieces of the vision mean. And then in about half of the visions, we'll see that exclamation. And in fact, we'll see it in both of our visions today. That, that furthering idea of the picture, of the meaning, of the theme of the vision. So let's start with vision number one, where we're at today, uh, chapter two, those opening verses. And let's look at the illustration that we're given in verses one through three. Zechariah says, I lifted my eyes and I saw and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me to measure Jerusalem, to see what its width and what its length are. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward and another angel came forward to meet him. So just a few elements in here that we need to understand. This one, as far as a picture goes, isn't particularly complicated. The first image is a man with a measuring line. A measuring line would have been what they used to measure long, linear distances. uh, Something like a rope on a stick, but not a rope on a stick. Something with a measure that they knew extended over a long period, and they would use that to measure the length of walls, the distance around cities, and it would be measured in cubits most often. Uh, This one in particular is being used to measure the city of Jerusalem. More on that in a minute. There are also multiple angelic figures in this. Uh, There's one that's said to be the man with the measuring line, the one that Zechariah talks to. There's an angel who talks with Zechariah that's explaining angel, the one that seems to be kind of paired with him from vision to vision to give him the explanation of what's going on. And then there's a third figure, a third angel that sends the one angel back to give Zechariah a very particular message. So uh, the central figure, the central theme, the central picture is Jerusalem, the city, being measured. And after that image, we're given the explanation And this is where we have to kind of open it up and take a little bit more time. Look at what verse 4 says. That angel goes back and he says to him, Run and say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. In other words, this first part of the explanation talks about the future of Jerusalem, what is coming to the city. Remember, this is building on what has come before. And if you remember back to chapter 1 in vision number 1, 
A part of the promise in chapter 1, verse 16, said that the Lord will return to Jerusalem with mercy. And then God said, My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. And then that second vision dealt with God's protection over his people, but all the way back in vision one, there was the anticipation and the expectation that Jerusalem would be built, and the very visual picture that the measuring line would again be stretched out over Jerusalem. And now what do we see in the third vision? The measuring line being stretched out over Jerusalem. Again, God is using these visions to build off of one another. These aren't isolated, uh, standalone events. So Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt, but it's not going to be rebuilt to the extent that the people would expect. This is a struggling people. They are the remnant that has come back. They are building a temple that will not have the glory of the first temple. They're rebuilding a city that will not be of the same size and of the same scope as the one that was destroyed by Babylon. Uh, Nehemiah tells us about what the rebuilding of the walls looked like, and it's a difficult process. There's a lot of opposition There are people around them who do not want to see this happen. But this vision looks beyond the current state of the city to something much more grand. It says Jerusalem will be built up to the point where it will be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. The idea that Jerusalem would be so full that it overflows and overspills its walls, that the walls of Jerusalem won't be able to contain the amount of people and livestock in it. And the idea that it's kind of phrased that way, and then we'll get into this a little bit further, it reminds us that we should take these things at face value, that we should take these things literally. Again, a common understanding is that this refers to a spiritual people in a spiritual Jerusalem, that God draws an infinite number of people to himself. And we know that God does promise to bring people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Uh, but this real it refers specifically to a measured city, a city that overflows its walls, not only with people, but with livestock. And the very real question you have to answer, and I'm not trying to be glib about this, but if you have a spiritual people, you have to also explain spiritual livestock. And I don't have a really great explanation for that. So we're going to see this at face value, that there are going to be, there's going to be a time when Jerusalem is so inhabited with people and livestock, a real live functioning city, that it overspills and overflows its walls. But that's a problem. Because walls aren't just to look nice, walls are for defense. What does a hugely populated city do for defense in the minds of a people to whom the ruined walls of Jerusalem were not a blessing, they were a curse? They were a danger. But that's not going to be a problem because look at what the Lord says. He says, and I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Two significant promises there that we cannot miss. First of all, the Lord is going to protect his people. He will be like a wall of fire all around them, and that doesn't come out of nowhere. That leads us all the way back in our minds uh, to Exodus as God draws his people out of Egypt and that pillar of fire uh, in Exodus 14 that kind of confounded and terrified Pharaoh and his troops. And the second promise is that the Lord will be in their midst. And I think that's more significant than we realize. Mankind was designed to live in fellowship with God, but sin breaks that fellowship. In the garden, when Adam and Eve sin, the fellowship with God is broken. Mankind is cast out of the garden, away from the presence of God, and God no longer dwells with his creation. Until Sinai, when God says 
to the children of Israel, I will be your God and you will be my people. And most remarkable in that old covenant, I will dwell among you. And he does. Through the tabernacle and later through the temple, the glory of God dwells in the middle of his people. But the people are sinful. They're wicked. And Ezekiel gives us that picture in his visions of the glory of God rising up and departing out of his temple. And the glory of God never returns to Israel. Not in this temple that they're rebuilding. Not after Herod spends 40 years making the building prettier and nicer and once again a wonder of the ancient Near East. It never returns. But God has promised that his glory will return again. And it's not just here. We see it in Isaiah 60 when God says that they won't need the sun because his brilliance will dwell among them. We see it in Ezekiel 43 uh, when the glory of God is pictured as coming back from the east, exactly retracing the steps from where it departed, coming back to return to dwell once again in his temple among his people. So it's not just this singular promise. It's over and over and over through the prophetic word that God is going to dwell once again among his people. Not in general, not in vague spiritual terms, but there is a time coming when the radiant glory, the brilliance of of God's holy presence will dwell in his chosen place. And that brings us to the third part of the vision, which is the exclamation, that long paragraph in verse 6 through 13 that kind of expands those themes further. Look at verse 6. He says, up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. There's this call to come out of the land of the north, uh, which is Babylon. You can see on this next slide behind me kind of a, a picture of the ancient Near East there. And it's interesting because if you look at that slide, you'll notice that Babylon is actually not really north. It's more directly east of where Jerusalem is. Um, But this is where you have to know something about the geography of the land. It's why the land of the Bible makes sense. Because in order to get to Jerusalem from Babylon, you couldn't just make a straight route. There's a huge uncrossable desert there. Instead, you had to take a travel route that went all the way from the north. So whether you were a captive leaving or an army coming, you traveled to and from the north. See, these are conquerors that come from the north. And God calls his people now out of the exile that he put them in. Remember, uh, Cyrus declared that the people could go back, and 50,000 people do. They go back to build the city. They go back to build the temple. But tens of thousands stayed in the land where they were exiled to. Not all of them sinfully. I mean, we know that Daniel was there, that Daniel served uh, the kings of Babylon, that Daniel would serve the emperors of the Persian Empire, that Daniel was obedient to that calling. We know that Esther would remain, that she would be responsible for preserving her people from genocide through God's hand in her life. But the problem is many of the people simply grew comfortable in their exile. They no longer had a desire to return to God's promised land. And God calls them back. And if you think about it, it makes sense kind of on two levels. First of all, if God has promised destruction on the nations that brought destruction on his people, Why would you stay where the destruction was coming? And second of all, if God has promised to return to exalt his people in their place, why would you not come back to the blessing? Particularly, why wouldn't you want to come back to the blessing of the presence of God? Look what he goes on to say. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. 
Basically, God promises to deal with the nations, not only for the sake of his people, uh, but for the sake of his glory. And then he calls them the apple of his eye, which is this really kind of poetic way of saying uh, the pupil, the centermost part of your eye. How many of you really, really enjoy it when people or things touch your eyeballs? Not me, no. It it pokes, it hurts, the, the slightest little bit of dust. Maybe it doesn't even take anything to get in there, just dryness that irritates our eye. Our eyes, particularly the pupils, the centermost part of our eyes, are things that we protect, things that we count as precious, things that we guard. And God is saying that he treats his people as something precious, something guarded, something that he will defend because it is dear to him. And that God will come against those who come against his people. Look what he says in verse 9. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they will become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. There is a time coming when this one, this anticipated one, Messiah, will simply shake his hand toward the nations. His power is so great that all he has to do is wave, and the nations are disciplined. And you see this great reversal that those who were slaves are now served. It's that consistent theme that the ones who oppressed Israel will end up serving Israel. And the fact that God has promised this to them is a cause for great celebration. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Come out of Babylon and the daughter of Babylon. Remember who you are, the daughter of Zion, the children of God. That idea that Zion is tied to the particular place of worship is God's people. God's people find their identity in their worship of Yahweh. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. What a wonderful promise that the Lord will not only dwell among his people, but that when he does, many nations will bind themselves to the Lord. There's a time coming when God is the God of the nations, not simply in his ruling authority, not simply in his sovereignty. He always has been and always will be the sovereign over all the nations. But there's a time coming when he will not only be the king and conqueror and ruler of the nations, but when the nations will bind themselves to him, when they will call themselves his people, and when he will call them his people. There's going to come a time when they experience the blessing of being identified with Yahweh, and that's not new to Zechariah. We've seen that promise already in the minor prophets, but it's not even new to the minor prophets. That idea that the people of the world will join themselves to the right worship of God is actually grounded way back in the Abrahamic covenant. You remember when Genesis 12, when God made those remarkable promises to Abraham, what did he say? I'm going to give you land as an eternal possession. I'm going to give you seed, children that you cannot number, and I'm going to bless you, Abraham. I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. What have we seen over and over promised? Those who come against God's people, those who would curse Israel, wind up becoming a curse themselves. That is not random. That is not just because they are mean. It is because it is founded on God's covenant faithfulness to his promises to Abraham. But he also says, and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The idea that the nations of the world will be blessed because of Abraham and his seed. And again, there are many who see these promises as being fulfilled in the church. 
a church that's made up of women, men and women from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And it's true, the church is a unified body across language, across cultures, across time. The people who have come to God through the work of Jesus Christ. But that promise does not remove the distinction between the nations and Israel. Not only broadly biblically, but not here in the immediate context. To take the church and put it in this actually does damage to what God says immediately following that. What does he say in verse 12? And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. God makes a distinction right here in the text that even as he calls the nations to himself, he sees Judah and Jerusalem as distinct. Not that he saves people two different ways, not that he has love for one and not the other, but that there is a distinction, a separation, a preciousness to the people of Israel that he has promised in his word, that he will again inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. This is the only time in the Bible when Israel is called the Holy Land. What makes it holy? It's not the people. It's the presence of the Holy One in their midst. There's a time coming when the Lord is going to purify His people, when they're going to live in an expanded Jerusalem with Him as their protection. When Jerusalem and Judah are seen as precious and prized and when the nations bind themselves to Him. Again, it, it makes sense if we read these things literally. We did that. The vision in chapter, in chapter 1 said that the Lord was angry with them for 70 years. We didn't have to wonder what that meant. 70 years meant 70 years in captivity. When God says he's going to rebuild the city to overflowing, we don't have to wonder what that means. It means that Jerusalem will be refilled to the point of overflowing, and it will be that way because God is present in their midst. And again, it's kind of this telescoping reality of where we've been through these visions. Vision one, God sees his people. Nations at rest, Jerusalem oppressed, but God having a jealousy and a desire for the restoration of his people. Chapter vision number two, there are enemies, real enemies who have threatened to destroy and scatter Jerusalem, but God will raise up powers to scatter the scatterers and destroy the destroyers. And now verse three, God, or chapter vision three, God will be faithful to rebuild the city that he said he would rebuild to the point that they can't imagine because his glory will dwell among them. But that brings up a huge question, Why? Why in the world would God do this for these people? How can a people like this inherit promises like that? Because Israel has a problem and it deals with their worship. And so we're going to get into this next vision, which talks about the high priest of Israel. Answering that question is what this fourth vision deals with in chapter 3. We're going to look at the vision of the high priest. And once again, we're going to open with the illustration. Verse 1 in chapter 3, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. 
So there's some images here, some pieces of this picture that we're familiar with and some that we might not be. First of all, Joshua, the high priest. You remember back to our last minor prophet in Haggai, we're told that Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, was serving at the high, as the high priest during this time. Zerubbabel is the governor. He is the civic leader of the people. Joshua is the high priest. He is over the returned remnants worship. And Joshua is seen standing before the angel of the Lord. And once again, that angel of the Lord is not just another angel. When he speaks in verse 2, he speaks, uh, and it comes from the Lord himself. When he speaks in verse 7, he speaks with the power and the authority of the Lord himself. And we went over that in more detail last week. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that if you need kind of a, a reminder of how this angel of the Lord has shown up in the biblical record. And this is one who sets himself as equal with Yahweh, and that only makes sense if this is another person of the Trinity. So again, I would hold with the many, many commentators who say this is a picture of Christ, Christ himself. And to the right hand of Joshua stands Satan. He stands before the angel of the Lord, and to the right hand of Joshua stands Satan. Satan literally means accuser, and that's exactly what we see him doing here. Standing at the right hand of Joshua, the high priest, to accuse him. We'll go through that a bit more when we come to the explanation of what's happening. Uh, but moving on, we're told that Joshua is standing before the angel of the Lord clothed in filthy garments. Um, that is the strongest Hebrew expression for defiled garments. There are some translations that uh, put excrement there. Uh, you can get the picture. He is standing before the angel of the Lord absolutely defiled and filthy. That's a problem because the high priest had very specific garments he was supposed to wear. And those garments were distinct and they were beautiful and they were functional and they were pristine always. You don't go into the presence of the Lord covered in filth. But those clothes are removed and they're replaced with clean garments and he has a turban put on his head. And one thing I want to draw your attention to about with that, regard to that turban, uh, that turban had a very particular inscription on it according to the law. In a gold plate on the front of that turban, it would say, Holy to the Lord. Set apart, distinct, marked out for the service of the Lord. And so what we see in this picture is it's a reversal from an accuser to being rebuked, from filthiness to cleanness, to purity. And with that picture in mind, now we can move on to the explanation and kind of work through what it means. And this is where we get to the answer to that question. How can Israel ever hope to maintain or, or come into these blessings? How do a sinful people inherit these beautiful promises? And this is the answer. First, as we unpack the image, we have a high priest clothed in filthy garments standing before the angel of the Lord. And to understand the significance of what's happening here, you have to understand something about the ministry of the high priest. He wasn't just the guy who stood up on the Sabbath and taught. The role of the high priest was primarily to represent the people before the Lord. To represent the people before the Lord. To physically bring them before the presence of the Lord. And I want you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 28. I'm not sure how many of you did your devotions in Exodus 28 this week, but if you did, I'm guessing that you didn't take a lot of notes on the garments of the high priest. It's one of those things that we read through kind of quickly. 
But in Exodus 28, when we get there, God has given his pattern for how he will dwell among his people. He's giving them the pattern of the tabernacle. He's showing them what the furniture inside ought to look like and what it will do. And now in 28, he's showing us what the priests will be clothed like. He's showing us what they will wear when you come into his presence because you don't get to approach a holy God however you want. You approach a holy God on his terms only, in his place, at his time, through his prescribed priesthood, and this is what that priesthood will wear. Exodus 28, verse 9, this is a part of what he will wear. You will take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so you shall engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You will enclose them in settings of gold filigree, and you will set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. So you can see on that picture behind me, uh, that image to your left, uh, it's a rendition of what that would look like. The names of the tribes of Israel inscribed on those stones... So that as the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, as the high priest went into the very presence of God, he would bear the names of the people of Israel. He would symbolically bear the people into the presence of God, even though they couldn't go there. And we go on, look down to verse 21. There will be 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. There will be like signets, each engraved with its name for the 12 tribes. This is now talking about the breastplate. Verse 29. So Aaron will bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. The people's names were on his shoulders. The people's names were over the high priest's heart. The high priest was not only the representative, the mediator, but the high priest was the one who brought the people, again symbolically, into the presence of God. Remember, the blessing of the law was that it told you how to live in fellowship with a holy God that you offended. God says, I will dwell among you, but a holy God can't dwell among a sinful people without consuming them. And so he gave them the sacrifices that covered their sins for a time. He gave them the priesthood to bring them into his presence. And no matter how remarkable it was that God would live among your people, Can you imagine that? That the God of the universe would dwell physically among your people in your city. The burden of the law was that it was a constant reminder that sin separates. You could go right up to the gates of the temple or tabernacle. You could bring your offering, but you could not go any further. The priest would take your offering and he would bring it to the altar. But he could go no further. Some of the priests had specific duties inside the holy place, inside the temple, but they could go no further. Only one man, only one time a year, only the high priest, and only on the Day of Atonement could go into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God. But he didn't dare do that without offering sacrifices for his own sins and the sins of the people first. And he didn't go in to marvel and to meditate and to linger in the presence of God. He went in, he did his work, He bore the people before the presence of the Lord, and he left. Through his appointed mediator, God symbolically brings his people into his presence. Why go through all of that? Because now I want you to turn back to Zechariah chapter 4, or chapter 3, 
And now we can understand the problem of Joshua being clothed in filthy garments. What we have here is a sinful high priest bearing a sinful people before a holy God. The sin of Israel, of Judah and Jerusalem, is pictured like Isaiah 64 pictures sins, like a filthy garment, a polluted cloak, an excrement-covered high priest. You say, that's graphic. It should be. Sin doesn't just make you a little dingy. Joshua didn't need a shower and a shave here. Sin doesn't just slightly fray the edges of things. Sin doesn't make it a little wrinkly. We'll throw it in the dryer and it'll all be good. Sin is pictured as filthy, polluting, as the vilest corruption that you could imagine. And the priest is covered with the sins of his people, and that is a problem because he is standing before the angel of the Lord and sin has no place in the presence of a holy God. This is the same angel of the Lord who told Moses to remove his shoes because he was on holy ground when he encountered him in the wilderness. Joshua has a much bigger problem than the shoes that he's wearing. And not only is he in the presence of a holy God, but to his right stands an accuser, Satan. Satan has been a liar and a murderer from the beginning. He lies about God. He lies about his nature. He lies about his promises. He lies about his provision. He undermines the view of God of his people. But there's one thing that Satan does not have to lie about, and that is the sinfulness of mankind. As Satan stands there accusing Joshua, he does not have to make anything up. The people are wicked and fallen. They do not deserve to be in the presence of God. They do not deserve his blessing. They do not deserve these marvelous promises that he has made. And that's why it is shocking when the angel of the Lord says what he says. When he rebukes Satan and silences him, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. He's not rebuked because Israel is secretly clean. He's rebuked because God has chosen them. Like a brand, like a branch pulled out of the fire, fire that they deserved, fire that chars and scorches and makes unclean, they have been pulled from, saved from, and cleansed from. The Lord rebukes Satan. The Lord chooses them. And the Lord commands that their filthiness be taken away. Remove the filthy garments from him. And we don't have to wonder what that means because he says, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. The filth and the stain of Israel's iniquity are going to be removed and replaced by purity, not by their effort, not by their will, but by the will and the work of God. That's the answer to the question. How can Israel ever come into possession of these promises? How could a wicked and sinful and defiled people ever hope to see a Jerusalem like this? How could they ever hope to dwell in the presence of God? The answer is because God has chosen them and God will remove their defilement. There is no physical restoration of Israel without the spiritual purification of Israel. And that brings us to the exclamation in verses 6 through 10. First, the Lord speaks to Joshua the high priest. The angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge over my courts 
and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. God promises Joshua three remarkable things. He's going to rule, he will have charge, and he will have access. He will rule over the temple. He will function as the authority over the worship of Israel. He will have charge over his courts. He will be able to maintain uh, the purity and the sanctification of what happens there. And most remarkably, he will have access. He will continue to have access on behalf of the people to the presence of God. See, when the people were scattered and when the temple was destroyed by Babylon, that priesthood looked very broken. The worship of Israel looked broken, and you wonder if it can ever be restored, if the people will ever have a way to rightly interact with God again. And here, God tells Joshua that if he's faithful, then God will remain faithful to mediate between his people and a holy God. That is a wonderful promise to a struggling people. But he goes on. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Listen, Joshua, you are a sign of something greater that is yet to come. This looks forward to one who is called the branch. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. In other words, the work of Joshua and the high priesthood is a shadow of something that is coming, something that will completely eclipse the work that they can do. This one called the branch, called the servant. And again, that's not built on nothing. Isaiah in particular, Jeremiah, they talk about the servant and the branch, the servant who always does what God requires him to do. The branch in Isaiah 4 who's tied to the cleansing of Jerusalem and the glory of God dwelling in Jerusalem. That's in Isaiah. That is hundreds of years before this happens. It's in Isaiah 11 where we're told that the branch will spring up from the stump of Jesse out of that fallen house of David that the branch will be in the Davidic line. Isaiah 52 and 53 where we're told that that servant will bear the sins of his people and will provide for their cleansing. See, Joshua and the high priests had an important work to do. But there was someone coming who would do a work that none of them could do. Joshua and the other high priests who would come after him, they would bring sacrifices that would cover the sins of the people for a time. They would wear garments that symbolically brought the people into the presence of God. But there was one coming who would offer a sacrifice that would cleanse the people once and for all time. There was one coming who wouldn't just symbolically bring the people into the presence of God, but who would cleanse them so that they were fit to approach the presence of God themselves. Promises that are unheard of under the law. And then the image changes. He says, Behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua, a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Now we see a stone set before Joshua, a stone with seven eyes on it. And again, that would be a little bit confusing, but these are consistent pictures that the Bible uses. The stone A messianic reference once again, seven eyes, I think probably most clearly deals with the idea of seven being the number of fullness, completion. Eyes used to show knowledge or understanding. It is a stone that knows, that sees, that comprehends all things. A stone on which the Lord has engraved its inscription. The beautiful purpose that He has given. 
And he's going to remove the iniquity of that land in a single day. The old high priest could never do that. One time a year on the Day of Atonement, he would go into the presence of God and he would sprinkle the blood on the altar and the, and the, the sins of the people would be covered for a time. But the problem is there was always another sacrifice you needed because there was always another sin, always another feast, always another festival, always another Day of Atonement next year that you knew was coming, always another high priest because this guy was going to get old and die good, bad, or indifferent, you had to keep doing the sacrifices. You had to keep replacing the high priest because the whole thing was so temporary. But this points forward to a time when the iniquity of the land will be purged finally in a single day. And again, is this pointing to the work of Christ? Yes. Jesus Christ is the only one that can cleanse sin. His work on the cross is the only work for all time that will ever purify sin. But this isn't just pointing to the fact that Christ will die on the cross and that in that day, sin and death will be defeated. This is talking about a specific day when that promise is applied to a specific land. I'm going to remove the iniquity of this land. What land? Again, in the context, it can only mean Jerusalem and Judah. That is the only land marker in this text for the last two chapters. In this day, there is a particular day coming when God will deal with the sins of this land. It won't be a gradual change. It won't be a gradual recognition. It will be like a sudden turn of the hearts of these people, and God will accomplish their redemption as a single day, a single act. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. How do we know that it's talking about a specific land? Because on that same day, every one of you talking to that specific people will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree, a consistent biblical picture of peace and prosperity and provision. And when we understand it that way, it actually perfectly harmonizes with what Israel was promised to be from the very beginning. In Exodus, when God chooses the people, he says, you will be to me a kingdom of priests. And Israel failed miserably in that calling. They were supposed to be a nation that brought people to the Lord. They were supposed to be a nation that demonstrated the goodness, the kindness, the mercy, the holiness of God, and they completely failed. At every time in their history, they failed. But there's a time coming when Israel will finally have their hearts turned and changed, and when they do, the picture is that they do what they were designed to do from the very beginning, that they finally become that kingdom of priests that draws people to the right worship of Yahweh. Something that Zechariah will continue to build on as we go through the book. They anticipate that time, not only now, but for hundreds of years of their history, when the Messiah, the stone, the branch, will not be the stone and the branch that's rejected, but it'll be the stone and the branch that is known and worshipped. And as we close, I... I want you to think about silence. There's a verse at the end of chapter 2 that I didn't skip, but I wanted, well, all right, I did skip it, but intentionally. I wanted to come back to it here. Way back when we were going through Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 2 contrasted kind of the useless idols of the nations with the power and the glory of God. And Habakkuk 2 said that the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. 
In Zephaniah 1, the people were warned about this coming day of the Lord. And in Zephaniah 1, 7, we read, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. And then here again in Zechariah chapter 2, verse 13, Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for He has roused Himself from His holy dwelling. There's something silencing about pondering the work of God. There's something that ought to bring us to this awestruck silence when we consider the power and the wonder and the justice and the mercy of God that's poured out in this day of the Lord. See, there's a chance that we dive into this study and we forget the one that we're ultimately studying because there's almost no room for silence in our lives. We are too busy. There's always another thing, always another game, always another appointment, always another class, always another assignment, always another something. And when we're not busy, our lives are still too noisy. There's always another call, always another email, always another picture, always another Snapchat, always another scroll, always another post, always another input into our minds from something and somewhere. We are not a people who do well to be quiet. But when we think about the Lord that we came here to worship today, not, not the idea of a God, not a force somewhere that somehow designed all of this, when we stop and we consider the God who with the Word spoke the heavens into existence, the God who knows the number of hairs on your head, the number of beats that your heart was assigned the words before they come out of your mouth, the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts that never actually come out anywhere, the God who is infinitely powerful and more intimately aware of, the, of us than we care to realize sometimes. When you stop and consider that God, sometimes silence is the only response. So how do we respond to this kind of God? Three things that I want us to think about as we go through our week. First of all, I think it would be good sometimes for us to practice being quiet. I'm not good at that. Not just because I'm busy, but because I don't like to make room for it. Sometimes when I'm just still and quiet, it feels like I'm wasting time, like there are other things that I should be doing, because let's face it, there's almost always something we should be doing. But more often, we, and by we I mean I, I don't like being quiet because it's difficult. Because quiet forces me to think on things that matter, and those aren't always comfortable. I think we would do well this week to find some time to be silent. Not the meditative, new age, empty your mind kind of silence, but to stop and for a moment behold your God. To consider the one who made the stars and the sun the one who gave you life and breath, the one who keeps the world and the universe spinning, and to simply pause for a moment in wonder that that kind of God would call us his people. Second, I think we need to meditate on the fact that Jesus is better. He is the better mediator of a better covenant, and if you need a place to direct your reading, Hebrews. Read through the book of Hebrews and be reminded this week that Jesus is better. 
Because in a church this size and through whoever's listening online and for whoever this recording might stumble its way into, I am confident in saying there is someone who will hear this that is attempting to be their own mediator, that is trying to work their way back to God's favor. To do enough, to be enough, to say enough, to read enough, to pray enough, to be enough somehow to be fit to be in the presence of God. And we do well to be reminded that the best that we can offer is like filthy rags. A filthy high priest unfit to be in the presence of God representing a filthy people who are unfit to be in the presence of God. But God has given us the one mediator, Jesus Christ. The one who took on humility in flesh but who lived without sin. The one who died so that we could live. The one who covered us in His righteousness. If you don't know that Jesus consider how you could approach a holy God. And if you know that, Jesus, then that ought to lead you to several points of worship during the week, I would imagine. And finally, we need to consider the fact that we are a people who have been cleansed for a purpose. That God does not save his people to leave them in their filth. Uh, Sometimes we're hesitant to talk about the need to change. That God loved me just as I am, and so I can stay just as I am. God loved a filthy people, and he clothed them in his righteousness But God cleansed Joshua so that he might do the work of the high priest. God will cleanse Israel so that they might do the work of drawing the nations to him. God has provided for our cleansing so that we might do the work that he has called us to do. To put sin to death in our life and to pursue him in worship and obedience and all that we do. Consider this week what God has called you to do through his cleansing and through the power of his spirit in your life. Let's pray. Lord, you alone are worthy of our worship and our praise, and we do worship you. You've provided us the only way to have access to the Father through the work of Jesus Christ. And Lord, remarkably, you've called us to draw near, not timidly, but with confidence, fully assured that the work of bearing our sin was completed once and for all on the cross of Christ. And so, Lord, we as your people draw near with grateful hearts, rejoicing in the fact that you have called us your own. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.